Hello pod, I'm Chris Hewitt and welcome to part two of the final Empire podcast of 2020. In this half of the show, you're going to find me, James and Helen reviewing a whole ton of movies, talking about movie news and an interview I really enjoyed doing with Ma Rainey's Black Bottom stars, Coleman Domingo, Michael Potts and Glenn Turman. And do let me know on Twitter if you like this two-part way of doing things on the pod. Two fairly reasonably sized parts may be better than one unwieldy behemoth every week. You never know, this might become a regular way of doing things around here. But do let me know. We will take your feedback on board. Anyway, enough from me. It is back to, well, me. Here's part two. Enjoy. It's time now to delve deep into this week's movie news. And you may think, well, Chris, there was a shitload of movie news that dropped last week just after you recorded the podcast about Disney's slate, the Marvel slate, the Star Wars slate, the Pixar slate, the Sister Act 3 slate, everything that was announced at the most romantic concept of all, the Disney investors call. Oh, Oh, Just the words just give you the thrills, don't they? Oh, trips off the tongue. Just paints a picture, doesn't it? (laughs) I really, really wish I was an investor in Disney. But... Because they call you. It's nice. It's just nice to know that they care. I mean, you could have <laughs> you know, tuned into the call, Chris, if you wanted to stay up all night and listen to it. What? Yeah. Um, that was playing FIFA. It's fine. Anyway, so we did a... we. There was so much news that came out of that that we recorded a one-hour special, which is up right now in your regular podcast feed. Uh, so we're not going to go into that that much, or indeed at all, this week. We're going to talk about a couple of things that also happened between recording the podcast and the Disney news drop, which wasn't related to Disney. Uh, so we're going to start off by talking about a couple of people who died last week. So we lost Dame Barbara Windsor, who, of course, was one of the stalwarts mm. of the Carry On movies and uh, came to national prominence later in life as Peggy Mitchell in EastEnders, which for mm. people who don't know what that is, is a long-running, very, very popular soap opera over here. And we also lost Tiny Lister, who was a wonderful character actor. You, you may remember him as the president in The Fifth Element. And also he was in Friday as well. And he was the convict on the ferry in The Dark Knight as well. He had a great, great role there. Yes. Um, so, yes. But I loved him. I loved him in The Fifth Element. Weirdly, little bits of his, some of his lines are widely quoted in my family. That whole, uh wonder, just comes up a lot. I don't know why, <laughs> but it does. Um, but he just, like, he just had... Uh, one of the great faces and yeah, uh, and yeah. obviously that big deep voice he was one of those guys every time he turned up you're like oh I like him uh, even though he often played a bad guy not in the fifth element though no he's great no, in that great in he that. was not yeah. entirely like you know he was a politician in that let's yeah. say but uh, yeah his real name was Tommy Tommy Lister Jr uh, Tiny as it turns out was a nickname because <laughs> he was massive who knew Huge. who knew who knew but he was uh, 62 when he passed away last week and uh, yeah he's one of those actors who have you popped up in something you're always you're, you're always pleased to see him I mm. think and uh, and Barbara Windsor as I well mean, weirdly enough we were talking about Carry On movies last week yeah and uh, you know she wasn't in all of them obviously but uh, she was just a tremendous presence in those films you know cheeky and fefacious and full of life and uh, and and humor mm. it was great to see her pop up on eastenders i didn't watch it religiously when she was in no. it i don't watch it anymore these days at all but you know uh, i know that she became in many many ways kind of the the standout of the show Mm. Yeah, I think she, I mean, she was just so great that I knew her from the Carry On films growing up. I just thought she was hilarious. I think it's one of those roles where 
you know, people think that she's a little bit like Marilyn Monroe. People think that she's just getting laughs from her looks and from other people leering at her. And I think there's actually quite a, a sharp comedy brain at work there in her own stuff as well. But but what really stands out from that early part of her career is just the joy she took in everything. She just seemed delighted all the time. And of course, that incredible laugh stands out in, in your memory. But you yeah. know, she, she was just such a kind of ray of sunshine in all of those films, no matter how ridiculous the role was or what what she was doing, you know? Mm. And then, you know, I think EastEnders, you're right, gave her a chance to show off her dramatic ability and, and the fact that, you know, she was a real actress as well. And, and it's something that she isn't always properly credited with by people who only remember her from from the carry-ons, but you know, the, the talent is definitely there for sure. She was, yeah, she'll be much missed. She really will. She was only in nine carry-on movies. Yeah, it feels like all of them. It feels like all the good ones, right? Pretty much. Well, she wasn't in Carry On Screaming, which I think is widely acknowledged as the mm. best one, but she was in some really, really good ones. So her first one was Carry On Spying. Then she was in Carry On Dick. That was her last one. Uh, that's about Dick Turpin. Not of course, you obviously. think it might be. But yeah, she was she was so good. I always I loved watching those Carry On movies when I was mm. a kid. And um, yeah, very, very sad indeed. Yeah. Very, very sad indeed. Barbara Windsor, Dame Barbara Windsor, in fact, who passed away last week, aged 83. Something else to talk about that, that broke last week. We were talking on last week's show about how Chris Nolan had reacted negatively, shall we say, to <laughs> Warner Brothers' decision to mm. put all their 2021 slate onto HBO Max and streaming, as well as in cinemas, the ones mm. that are open anyway. And then Denny Villeneuve <laughs> issued a statement that made Chris Nolan's look like it was a warm Christmas hug. <laughs> <laughs> and that noise you can hear is Warner Brothers being thrown under a bus by Denny Villeneuve, who is not happy about this at all. Yeah, th- there have been reports of a lot of unhappiness from filmmakers, cast members, and even producing partners like Legendary. I don't know how much truth there is in some of that, but certainly Villeneuve and Nolan suggest that uh, yeah, the filmmakers were not maybe given a lot of warning or a lot of input into this, into the decision and uh, perhaps are not thrilled about it. I, I mean, I you know, look, I have I genuinely have sympathy for everybody in this circumstance. I understand Warners are looking at the cinema landscape right now and, you know, recoiling in horror. They're looking at the amount of films that they've splashed out vast amounts of money on and are now just sitting there doing nothing. You know, mm. they're looking at the numbers for HBO Max and the numbers, comparing them to the numbers for Disney Plus and thinking we have to do something. I get all of this. I also get why cin- filmmakers would be upset, particularly someone like Villeneuve, who absolutely has made Dune for the big, biggest screen possible. I mean, mm. the scale of that film is off the chain. And, you know, I get that he would be less than thrilled at the possibility of it going to, you know, TVs. And, and not getting to make the other half of Dune. And not getting to make the other half of Dune, yeah, which, yeah. you know, he didn't even really massively dwell on in that piece. So he's basically said that, hasn't he? He's basically yeah. said that by doing this, that Warner Brothers have effectively killed Dune as a mm. franchise. Yeah. Whether he's right or not, we shall see. And there's mm, still maybe time for them to reverse that decision because Dune's not due out for a long, long time. But um, And Dune, in many ways, makes the least sense of all of them, given that it, you would think life will be back to normal to a certain extent by the time that's due to come out. You so. have to hope anyway. Mm-hmm. So look, I you know, I do have sympathy with everybody, but I I also hope that they find some way to work out and in particular to get me the second half of June. Y- yes, a hundred percent. Helen and I are the real victims here and everyone should understand that. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and the last bit of news that dropped last week I want to talk about is the trailer for nobody. Did mm. you guys see this trailer? 
Oh, God, yes. Yeah. Yes, Bob Odenkirk <laughs> goes full John Wick. And not yeah. even just a little bit, so much so that the, the whole film seems to be the plots for John Wick 1 and John Wick 2 rolled up into a single film with Bob Odenkirk killing people. Yeah, and you say this as if it's a bad thing. No, it's an amazing thing. Like, I couldn't <laughs> be more on board for this. It's Saul with, like, a fucking yeah. assault rifle. It's better kill Saul. It's Saul Batman. <laughs> Yes. It's whatever it is you want to call it. Uh, but yeah, if you don't know what this is, go and seek it out immediately. So this is directed by Eliane Schuler, who did that Hardcore Henry movie a few years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, that might be a good thing for some people. It might be a bad thing for some people. But it is written by Derek Kolstad, who wrote the first two John Wicks, certainly. It's produced by David Leach, who obviously co-directed John Wick. And yes, it's hard to get past the John Wickiness of this <laughs> uh, trailer, in which Bob Odenkirk, who... Yeah, that's we can you know that's not stresses enough. Is a fifty-eight-year-old comedian who has <laughs> decided because he has a driving force behind this project. Uh, you know, he didn't write it, but he came up with the idea that he has decided that he wants to be an action hero, <laughs> and so he is playing an ordinary guy, an ordinary family guy. Uh, his wife is Connie Nielsen. They have two adorable kids, and you know he's very much in that sort of older middle-aged older middle-aged man quandary and that life is passing him by people are ignoring him they're not really taking notice of him anymore then one day a group of guys burgle his house torture and well torment him and his family and he doesn't fight back and then this eats away at him and he snaps and he decides to fight back now, fighting back for this guy is made somewhat easier by the revelation that he used to be a CIA operative. <laughs> <laughs> he has a very away. particular set of skills. <laughs> he really does. And a particular set of kills and all that sort of stuff. And this looks absolutely demented, I have to say. Because it's, yeah, there's humour in it, obviously. But this is literally Bob Odenkirk, best known, of course, as Saul Goodman and Better Call Saul and Breaking Bad, <laughs> you know, doing fight scenes in a seemingly unironic fashion. And I am here for that. Mm-hmm. It looks really, really fun. I can't wait to see it. Yeah. Could be terrible, but that's, that's give yeah. it a benefit of the doubt. It looks great. Looks like really, really, really great, dumb fun. Let's move on to this week. Things that have happened this week. Um, I guess one thing we can talk about that broke after the Disney news, you know, the news again that broke last week, mm-hmm. is that Jamie Alexander is going to be back as the Lady Sif in mm. Thor Love and Thunder and that she will also recur in Loki. Good. Cool. Because she was, you know, on holiday when Hela came through the Bifrost and killed everyone. <laughs> so, you know, that's handy for her. Yeah. Absolutely suspicious, in fact. Mm. <laughs> Look, she was hanging out with the Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. or something. It's fine. Uh-huh. Yeah, sure. It happens. Uh-huh. Okay. This strikes me very much like the the bloke in The Godfather who knows that the the car has a bomb in it and just legs it. <laughs> nah, nah. She's cool. She's cool. She was in on it. That's what I'm saying. But yeah, she's great. Hopefully that film will be great. Mm. And everything will be great. Everything. There are a couple of real life pieces of casting news this week that um, yes, uh, threw oh. me for different reasons. So there's one that I think is probably a very good piece of casting, which is Naomi Aki mm. playing Whitney Houston in a new biopic. And you kind of look at that and you're like, all right, I can I can see that. I feel yep. that. And then there's Lily James and Sebastian I mean, Stan as Pamela Anderson and Tommy Lee. And I, I'm, I'm struggling with this one. But this is also about the sex tape, isn't it? Like it's not, it's, it, it involves... 
The sex that you may get to see is Winter Soldier, Helen. That, that could be a thing that happens. <laughs> I thought we were only going to see as Falcon. I don't know. It's, uh, I'm very confused as to what's where. They're both good actors. I like them both. I just, I'm, I'm really struggling to see it. It's, yeah. I, Interesting casting. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Lily James is an English rose. I can't imagine her getting up to anything tawdry like that. But even, even Naomi Aki's fantastic. Mm. But yeah. That's going to be a difficult job, isn't it? Playing Whitney Houston. Yeah. And I wonder how warts and all it's going to be. Yeah, that's the question, isn't it? I think, um, you know, we've we've seen from the Whitney documentaries that some of them are more sanitised maybe than mm-hmm. others. Mm. But I don't know, you know, I don't know how warts and all I even want it, to be honest. That's true, but you don't... It's written by Anthony McCartan, which is a bit of a red flag for me. He's the guy who wrote Bohemian Rhapsody, and he's obviously a, oh, yeah. a very very talented screenwriter but uh he tends to write movies that you know i find a little bit bland mm. and a little bit hagiographic in in the way they approach their subjects uh so you know listen we're gonna hear great whitney houston tracks on the big screen sung by whitney houston yeah naomi aki does not have to worry about that <laughs> you know <laughs> that must be a weight off just concentrate on nailing the uh the the, the acting stuff and we'll leave the singing to whitney yeah um what else do we have? Chris Pine, Dungeons and Dragons. Oh my God, yes. I mean, who can forget Dungeons and Dragons' triumphant debut in 2000? Uh, still Jeremy Irons' finest work. Yeah, my therapist says I'm really struggling to forget it, actually. <laughs> I mean, it's fucking dreadful. But, I'm, you know, as someone who uh, finds that kind of thing quite appealing, I'm, I'm excited and mm. I, I, I applaud them for doing this. And I'm sure it had absolutely nothing to do with the fact that the rights to the property were going to expire if they didn't make the film immediately. So that's, uh, that's good. <laughs> But there's good people, yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's John Francis Daly and it's Jonathan Goldstein. You know, they did Game Night. Game Night is phenomenally good. And but I, this doesn't feel like something that's going to be comedic. But if it is, here for it. I feel. I feel like Chris Pine means it's probably going to be a little bit comedic. I don't see him doing a straight fantasy Dungeons and Dragons. I don't see them doing a straight fantasy no. Dungeons well, see, and Dragons. Well, neither do I. But then, you know, I don't want it to be Your Highness either. So I don't know quite. But I, I, I like their sensibility. I, I think this could be good. Okay. At the very well. least, we'll have dragons and dungeons. <laughs> and many-sided dice. Really went out on a limb there, didn't you? Yeah. Uh, this could be... I've been thinking I'm sticking about my this, neck out. And I think <laughs> taking all the information available into consideration... It could be good. It could be a film. Hedge those bets. It could also be bad. It might yeah. be somewhere in the middle. Could be. Yeah, I wonder how straight this is going to be. You know, they, they may even go down the Jumanji route. Yeah, might, I think they, they could. Of, of doing mm. something along those lines. I, I would, I'd be there for that. Mm. Yeah. As long as, uh, you know, is this an adaptation of the game or is it an adaptation of the classic animated TV series? Oh, my God, I love it. Oh. <laughs> With a little unicorn? Oh, oh Umi. Yeah. I was obsessed oh, with Avenger. that. Oh, Avenger. I mean, he wasn't as sweet and cute as Uni, but still, I've gotten the nostalgic feels for that. Oh, mm. didn't they all die? They didn't make it home, did they? They didn't make it home, no. no. They they went on that, that one, you know, fairground ride and then it all went wrong. That's it. I mean, it all went to shit after that. Yeah, they dropped that one tab of LSD between them and it all <laughs> went tits up from that point on. I hope their parents sued the shit out of that theme park. <laughs> I hope they did. <laughs> um, yeah. This is exciting. I think this could be good. And Chris mm. Pine is good people. They are good people. Everyone's good people. Well done. Well done, the good people. Speaking of Hollywood Chris's, segue. Anna de Armas is going to be starring in The Grey Man opposite Chris Evans. It's a Knives Out reunion, but this time oh my with Ryan God. Gosling. That's amazing. This is the Russo Brothers new movie, isn't it? It is indeed, yes. It is. 
So they have Cherry, which stars Tom Holland, and that'll be coming out uh, early next year, I guess. That's their first movie since Endgame that they mm-hmm. directed. But this is the, this is exciting. This is their huge epic spy versus spy movie. Ryan Gosling's a goodie. Chris Evans is the baddie. Anna de Armas in between somewhere. Mm. But yeah, it's exciting. It could be. It's apparently Netflix's biggest budget yet, bigger even than season two of Floor Is Lava, <laughs> where they are going to use real lava and burn through the contestants. Ben Affleck is going to be Houdini. Okay. Unless he gets out of it. Oh, that's very clever, Jimbo. See, that's very. I've got a that. joke as well. I've got a joke. Who was a Jawa's favorite magician? Houdini. Houdini. <laughs> Houdini. <laughs> I like that. But they also have a soft spot for. David Copperfield also. Uh, but yes, Dan Trachtenberg is going to direct this. It is a uh, biographical movie. It's a biopic. It's a biopic. It's a biopic of Harry Houdini, uh, who, of course, was a master magician, a master of illusion, um, and then died. Okay. Do you think the, uh, the ben, ben Affleck went up to the casting director and went, Houdini? And they went, Houdini. <laughs> Who demand? I hope it's called Who demand. <laughs> no, <laughs> Amanda amazing. Bynes already nailed that. Thank you very much. So. <laughs> uh, but yeah, he died, didn't he? He was um, he. If I'm right in thinking, he was doing uh, an illusion where he asked someone from the audience to punch him in the stomach, mm. uh, and he was going to prove how rock hard his tasty abs were, mm, which and they were. In fairness, they like, were. Yeah. And then if, I, if I've got this right, he hadn't set himself, he hadn't steeled himself for the blow, and the idiot from the audience just went, oh, and punched him in the stomach. And um, I believe his fist went right through him. I'm not entirely sure of the, the details of that. No, I, I don't think, think they, that's quite right, but I think yeah. something inside went plop. And <laughs> I'm, sorry, oh I'm not a doctor. I'm not a doctor. Oh <laughs> I only made it through two years of medical school. It's like Chris, you can't. You you, know, you need to work in your bedside manner. You can't tell someone whose whose husband has just died that I'm afraid something inside your husband went plop. <laughs> you know, you need to work in that a little bit. I'm like, huh? So Wise that's how I became there. a film yeah. journalist instead, folks. Uh, but yes, my understanding is that something inside went plop and skew with. Great. Thanks for that. Have you heard the theory that he was um, involved in spying? What? Yeah, but, um, he was because uh, he was able to travel around all over Europe, sort of around World War One time, and he apparently he did a bit of bit of spying for the Allies. Anyway, um, there's a really good book about it which I have upstairs and I can't remember the name of. But if anyone's interested, <laughs> get tested really on Twitter. All this week, we really are. Uh, what else is happening? Anything else you want to talk yeah, about? Yeah, just a very quick one. Um, Jamie Bell, Margaret Qualley, mm-hmm. in a biopic about Fred and Ginger. Esther and really? Rogers, that is. Not just random Fred, random ginger. Yes. Really? I hadn't seen that. Yeah, yeah. So it's a kind of behind the scenes, what drove them. Um, apparently, we'll tell the untold real love story between the two legends. So we'll see. That's exciting. Uh, mm. Has Jamie Bell got form and dancing? I don't I, know. I believe he's I... entirely new to it. Yeah? Yeah, never danced before in his life, yeah. man. Two left feet bell, they call him. <laughs> That's what they call him. Yeah. Who was the other person? Margaret Qualley. Margaret Qualley. Do you think she can dance? I think she can, actually, yeah. She would trained as a ballerina, uh, weirdly, when she was young. Oh, well, there you go, then. Yeah. Sorted. Yaya Abdul-Mateen II has joined Michael Bay's Ambulance, which we talked about in the show a couple of weeks ago. There's someone with Jake Gyllenhaal uh, as uh, one pair of a 
pair of brothers, one one half of a pair of brothers, uh, who nick an ambulance, and then there's someone in the back who's in desperate danger of their insides going pop. So they have to figure something out along the way. And right. Yaya Abdul Mateen II, who of course so great in Watchmen, he will mm. be so great in Candyman. Aquaman. He was so great in Trial of Chicago Seven. Uh, yeah, Aquaman, The Matrix Four. He's yeah, you name it, he's in it. So he would be what the paramedic working on the woman in the back potentially. I'm looking now. Oh, I beg your pardon. I, I'm looking now and uh, huh? or Robbery, the brothers, mm-hmm. hostages. Doesn't say. Doesn't say. Doesn't say. Okay. But presumably he might be in the back or he might be a cop mm. uh, leading the, the manhunt. Who knows? But it's a good cast and it is uh, not Michael Bay directed. It's directed by Lawrence Munch-Peterson. Lawrence Munch-Peterson. So, you just like saying it, don't you? Yeah, it's a fantastic name, Helen. And it might be my favourite movie name of the week if it wasn't for the new addition to the cast of Black Adam, mm-hmm. Quintessa Swindell. Oh, that's pretty good. Quintessa, Quintessa. Swindell. And they're going to play Cyclone. Now, Helen, as our DC expert, who is Cyclone? <laughs> uh, Cyclone can manipulate wind and sound, Chris. You actually knew that? I did. I, well, I read it this earlier this week. Oh, thank so, Christ. Yeah. Because if I'd gone to Jimbo, it would have just been dead air. <laughs> no, Cyclone is Cyclone is not a, a massive, or was not historically a massive figure in the comics. There have been, I think, a couple of people of similar description uh, to her, but has become bigger in the last few years, basically. Fantastic. Quintessa Swindell, a relative newcomer. I haven't seen them in anything. Uh, Trinkets, Euphoria, one episode of Euphoria, and a couple of films upcoming. But yeah, very much a newcomer. But what a name. Quintessa Swindell. My word. What a belter. That's the last piece of movie news of the year. Until we finish recording the podcast (laughs) and Kevin Feige unleashes phase five, six, and seven. (laughs) Feige. Anyway, that is it for the movie news for this year. We'll be back in a couple of weeks with more movie news whilst Hollywood takes a little break. But it is time now for our final guests of the year. You will recall that last week I said we would have Vince Vaughn and Catherine Newton, stars of Freaky. Freaky! On the show. Uh, but that's because Freaky was due to come out on Boxing Day in this country. It has now moved. I believe it's moved to February, but I'm not entirely sure. I can't. Do not quote me on that. I cannot confirm, but it is definitely not opening on Boxing Day. I guess a bunch of films that would have been opening here are moving because of the lockdown. That's not a lockdown. So anything that's in tier three in this country, and that's most places as far as I can see, uh, do not have open cinemas or sporting arenas or concert halls. Or any of the good stuff. But I just hope that there, there are venues to reopen when we come back from this. That's how some guests. So we're not going to have Vince Vaughn and Catherine Newton, who was cast this week as Cassie Lang in yeah. Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania, um, which was a, a recasting. Emma Furman played the role in Avengers Endgame. So I wonder what that means. It means we should talk about portals. We should talk about portals. We absolutely should talk about portals. But we should also talk about Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, which is out now on Netflix as of today, December 18th. It is, of course, Chadwick Boseman's final film. It is an adaptation of August Wilson's play. 
Uh, it is the second of August Wilson's play to be brought to the big screen by Denzel Washington, who has been entrusted with doing so, bringing the century cycle of plays that August Wilson wrote to the big screen. Uh, and he has basically got a deal with Netflix. Uh, hmm. So Fences came out a couple of years ago. Then he signed a deal with Netflix and he'll be bringing a whole bunch of other August Wilson plays to Netflix over the next few years as well. But this is the second one, and this is set in the 1920s and uh, follows Fiola Davis, who plays Ma Rainey, real-life singer, real-life figure, during recording of the titular song and the titular album, Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. And uh, Chadwick Boseman plays Levy, who is her tempestuous trumpet player, and he hooks up with Ma Rainey's backing band, so we have Coleman Domingo as Cutler on trombone. We have Michael Potts as slow drag on double bass. And the great Glenn Turman, who, of course, was in Gremlins, one of the very first victims of a gremlin. Uh, <laughs> he is Toledo and he plays piano in this. And I, I caught up with the uh, the three guys, Coleman Domingo, Michael Potts and Glenn Turman on Zoom, the Dread Zoom recently. Uh, so there may be some audio dipping, maybe some audio ducking in this. Uh, and we had a great time uh, talking about this movie, which is a fantastic film and they are wonderful in it and I urge you to see it. Uh, we talked about making the movie, we talked about their experience with August Wilson and of course we did talk about working with Chadwick Boseman. Oh, and two quick things. So yes, having listened back to the interview now, I've just popped on to tell you that Glenn and Michael and Coleman's audio tracks were not separate. They are merged together. So there is, at times, moments when some of them get lost in the mix. And also towards the end of the interview, we talk about what Coleman is wearing, which was some sort of incredible orange jacket with loads of buttons. I'm going to try and share a picture of that later on, uh, just so you know what we're talking about. Do please enjoy. Is this how it happened for you, actually? I wanted to, to talk to you, all three of you, because you've, you've each of the three of you have either... Um, acted in an August Wilson play or Glenn you've even been in the in a in a version of this on on stage Coleman you've directed an August Wilson play so whenever you heard that Denzel Washington had been entrusted with bringing these incredible works to the big screen were you beginning to circle these things <laughs> throwing your names in, in for contention just hey just you know this 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 could be something that I could do this 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 sounds like it could be a lot of fun for me <laughs> I don't know. I think you, I think you, I, the first thing I thought is that like, wow, it's in the best hands possible. Yes. Because knowing what Denzel's heart, his mind, his soul, and knowing what he's about and knowing how he can amplify August Wilson's words and text from the stage to film, I thought it was in the best hands possible. And then you just hope, you hope, you know, I hope somebody thinks of me, calls me. I'd like to, I'd like to play. I, 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 don't, 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 don't threaten me with a good time. <laughs> you know, so, so I really thought, uh, so I just hoped. And then when someone actually just, the beautiful thing is about, about this project is um, we, we all had offers, you know, so apparently between George and, and Denzel and Todd Black and the team, they, George chose every single person he wanted to bring into the fold to tell this story. Um, so whatever you're, you know, we've all been working for, for many years, you know, we have this legendary man, Mr. Glenn Turman here. We have Michael yeah. Potts, we have Viola, we have people who have uh, extensive careers. And so I think our additions were already out there <laughs> and, and maybe and possibly even yeah. like our work ethic and our humanity and the way 
we will work and play with one another. I think that was out there. And so it was just a matter of someone saying, I'd like that to be a part of this. I like that energy. I like that to be a part of telling a story and building this beautiful, beautiful film. So I think I feel blessed. And Glenn, obviously you had played, you had played Toledo on the stage before. Did that give you right. pause in a way upon considering whether to do this? Oh, no, 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 no. From the play, actually, uh, one night the curtain came down and uh, coming backstage, right, into backstage there, was Denzel Washington, who had just seen the play. And, uh, you know, I've known Denzel for a long time, and he said, uh, stay ready. Um, I said, what's up? He said, we're going to take this uh, to, the, to the screen. He says, I'll be, I'll be talking to you about it. So I stayed ready. <laughs> Stay in a state of preparedness. That's what an actor's life is. Just be perpetually ready. Yeah. You know, what happens is you got to, my saying is you got to stay ready to keep them having to get ready. Mm. Mom. Well, there so, you go. Right. That's what I do. <laughs> there you go. Uh, and Michael, what about yourself? How did you get involved in this? Were you, uh, were you, did the dental just pop out unexpectedly one day while you were walking down the street? <laughs> No, I, I, I think maybe maybe the seed for, for Denzel asking me to be a part of it was uh, a production of Jitney I'd done uh, mm-hmm. that Ruben Santiago Hudson had directed uh, on Broadway. And I met Denzel afterwards. And no, he didn't offer me a job then. Oh. <laughs> he didn't offer me a job. And then the following year, yeah, yeah, the following yeah. year he and I did a pl- another play together on Broadway. And so, you know, and, and during breaks, he gave me the whole rundown of what he, had, he was going to do, that he was going to bring all of this to film. And I listened to it and, um, and he, you know, how he wanted to do it and who, you know, directors he had in the mix and actors he had in the mix. And, you know, I'm listening to it. I'm going, yeah, great. But I never had any expectation, you know, that I would be doing one. It's as Coleman says, I hope I'm going, you know, it's an American century cycle. So there's a possibility. <laughs> <laughs> there's the possibility I could be in one but uh but 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 no I wasn't expecting it and then the call came and it was uh it was a great moment the moment I, I didn't believe at first I went no that's not true <laughs> you know couldn't have been that that simple and and, and this early <laughs> when they feel like we've been through everybody else call up Michael Potts <laughs> pretty much like when they get who to left and I have to say Glenn did you feel in it that maybe you had uh, an unfair advantage over Coleman and Michael and, and even Chadwick in that you had obviously played this character you were you had stayed ready you were ready so you had you had all that time you know that they that you, that you guys the rest of you guys just didn't have no 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 but i ne- i had the advantage i needed working with these guys <laughs> if it had been any other way i'd have been i'd have been left in the dust <laughs> They don't take no quarter, man. They take off and they keep on running and don't look back. <laughs> wait, wait, guys, wait for the old man. Hold on a minute. No, these guys. <laughs> but but these let guys me tell you old. this about let me t- let me tell you something about Glenn though. Glenn came in, he still came in so open and curious about and and 
redefining what the character was. He didn't, I never felt that you came in feeling like, well, I'm going to do what I did. It worked out well. Right. You know, you know, I, I know what this is. This is you came in still just like as if you were just like rediscovering it all with us, right. listening to us, what we were given. I felt like you were just like still as fresh and playful with the role. And you kept doing that and kept discovering, kept learning kept about that. Yeah. That was beautiful. So I, so I know I never felt that you were like, you were already leagues ahead in that way. You were mm-hmm. like, let's, let's see what this is again. Let's reinvent. It's, it's beautiful. true. Ditto. No, you never seemed like, yeah, like you were just rehearsing something you'd already done. It was always fresh. Always. Mm-hmm. Just, just in the moment. Yeah. I, yeah. I imagine, obviously, the circumstances of the film, you know, the fact that it's a film, not a play, uh, the fact that you're in rooms is very claustrophobic. You guys are, you know, there's, there's huge, very lengthy scenes where it's basically just the four of you in a room and you can feel the atmosphere of the room. You can feel the smoke. You can feel the tension. And I imagine the fact that you had those different confines and different partners to play with as well really helps and it really helped all all four of you i guess in terms of you know making sure these performances were rich and lived in and felt very much very much in the moment yeah i think there was everything about it the way we played off each other i think there are things that are happening that you see in the film that's all this nuance and detail that we discovered that was a part of even this a, a passing the flask or passing the weed, and they have a whole thing that you know that we, it started. We started to discover that like he's just grabbing the bottle and he, it, it ain't his. <laughs> Whose bottle is this? He's just drinking up somebody's liquor. Somebody, so everybody takes a. I remember at one point Chad just takes my weed and he just smoked it and passed it. And Glenn, he like nobody came out of that pocket at all. But so it's all this other nuance that. We we were able to play in with the characters like so there's all these small moments if you really look at it and you're like <laughs> just a look like oh you just going to take that <laughs> it's beautiful <laughs> hey, hey, hey. hey chris yep. hey, hey chris it didn't end up i don't i don't think it, it ended up in the film but there was a beautiful moment I, i've been drinking, <laughs> drinking michael's liquor, liquor all day right the whole rehearsal and so when Sturdivant comes down at the end and pays us he pays us all off and then 25 for you and 25 for you and 25 for you. And I was walking back and Michael just grabbed $5 out of my hand. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. That's funny, but you owe I love it. It was all <laughs> play, played it through. You'd be, you'd be talking and he would talk and walk by you and grab your lips <laughs> and, keep, and keep going. Like, wait a minute. <laughs> you didn't pay for this. <laughs> so everybody would play it through. Just play every through line. Through. All the way through. It was real. Every, it, was it was real. real. It was real. Everybody was. was no one, you know, the ball stayed in the air constantly mm-hmm. with these gentlemen. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and, you know, and, and, and Chad, the ball never hit the ground. Everyone yeah. was invested in every single moment from the, yeah. from the smallest yeah. to the largest. And you knew it. And you could, as an actor, you could relax and be comfortable because you knew someone else would pick it up and run with it. Everyone would get it. And they would throw something else back your way that you could play with and and coin something else out of. And that's, that's a gift. That's a gift as an actor. That's a rare, a rare thing to have gentlemen that you can kind of improvise with while on script and these moments off script. Mm-hmm. That this life is happening, so it's, it's just—it's authentic. It's real. It's truthful. Mm-hmm. It was a gift. 
there are moments in this movie where you're all scuffling with each other. Sometimes it's verbal, sometimes it's philosophical scuffles, sometimes they're real scuffles. And the way that there's so much energy and vibrancy in the performances uh, astonishes me as well. And I, I just wanted to, obviously, you know, Chadwick passed away a few months ago, and it's, it's very, you know, I'm, I'm sure you guys are, are still deeply, deeply affected by that. But I wanted to ask you about the the act of, of working together and working with him and what it felt like in those scenes, not just necessarily the, the scenes where Levy breaks, essentially, where he rages against God, but... The mundanity of it all, as you say, passing weed amongst each other, and uh, those little moments where you're you're sparring verbally back and forth. What that was like for the for the three of you. This is a beautiful thing. Um, a lot of actors, um, especially when you're starting out, you start out in the regions and you do regional theater, and you leave your families behind and you go to this place and you have to discover it and grow and get to know each other and truly become a family. And that's what we were able to do with this. It felt like we were back in the regions and we all ended up in Pittsburgh. And we are, well, where'd you eat? Where'd you find something to eat? What you doing? Blah, blah, blah. You know, where'd you get that? Whatever. But we're, we're all, right. and all, and as you're getting to know each other, you're getting to know the peace, you're getting to know each other. And um, it requires a, a, a great sense of uh, generosity mm-hmm. and, yeah. uh, and care because you, you know that everyone is mm. kind of alone right here. And so you have to build this family. And I know, you always hear the word family thrown around a lot, I think, in this industry. Oh, we're family, we're family. But I felt like we really had to become a family because we had to, we had to have, give each other room to go to those places and honor that. that you, I've got to give you space to make sure that, that, the, that Glenn can deliver his monologue at the piano, that Michael can play the bass the best, best way he can, that I could do the work that I'm doing. We had to have that, that much grace and sincerity. And, and, and faith in the room. So I think that there, yeah. it, it had that. Am I right, you guys? It yeah. did. And I, and I throw in fearlessness. I think, you know, mm-hmm. it, it required a fearlessness to, to go for it. I mean, that's what August Wilson mm-hmm. asked of you. You, 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 right. you'd better be fearless if you're going to step on the stage and try to embody these characters and say these words. Um, and that was in the room. And all of these, all of these performances are fearless. And just kind of went with them, the, the largeness of it, the scope of it. Um, and it was always, I mean, I watched all of them. It was, you know, it becomes a lesson for me as an actor, just the listening and the watching all of uh, everyone else in this film. I did, I did all of that, you know, it, it, visually with that fearlessness that we're speaking of is most in, uh clearly demonstrated if you look at Viola's choice of mm-hmm. makeup and wardrobe and mm-hmm. so on and so forth. I mean, what she allowed herself to be exposed to, to convey that she was indeed Ma Rainey is, is, is breathtaking, you know? Mm-hmm. You say, right from that moment, you go, oh! Yeah. <laughs> yeah. This, we're going yeah. someplace else yeah. here. <laughs> you know what this yeah. is yeah. not Hollywood. <laughs> there's, yeah. there's no ego. There's no ego. No, no preciousness. This is, no, this ain't this ain't no cutie future show. This is yeah the shit. <laughs> it is. It's like it's like oh you oh you ain't playing. 
People didn't come to, they didn't come to look cute. They came to tell a story. You ain't playing. You said, oh, okay, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. I'll be right back, I'll be right back. Exactly. Oh, y'all won't play like that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you, know, you know, Glenn doing his monologue, you're just like, oh, you're going to use up all the acting. Oh, so you're going to do that? <laughs> you're going to oh, use up all the acting in the room. Oh, you're going to do all that? Okay. <laughs> all right. <laughs> 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 You, you, but that's the thing. You got to get in. You got to get in. Everybody's bringing their A game, and you're like, "Oh, so you, you doing that? Oh, well, yeah. I guess all right. Uh, okay. Let me, let me, let me go home and learn my stuff." Yeah. Yes. I interviewed uh, Fiola for the magazine as well, and I have to say, I, I, I asked her about the particular way that Ma Rainey drinks a bottle of Coke, and I think with that gusto, really with gusto that has. That has stayed with me ever since I saw the film, I have to say. I hope, I hope she gets a contract, you know, a, a campaign. <laughs> because every time I saw it, it looks like the best Coca-Cola you've ever had in your ever, ever. life in the world. Right. <laughs> like a baby's bottle. And I'm big, you know, I'm thirsty. <laughs> it's hot. I got, we don't have no coat. <laughs> yeah, you guys are stuck in that room, that little rehearsal room downstairs. Yeah, it's yeah. hot. It's sweaty. Yes. It's smoky. Ma's upstairs yeah. with the Coca Cola. What's she going on? She wasn't worried about us. She wasn't worried about us. She had her own Not, two oh, Coca Colas. Two Coca Colas. Two, two Coca Colas. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, whenever I saw the film for the first time, I because I, I've seen it a couple of times since. I, I the first time I saw it. I have to say the the tribute to Chabik at the end really took my breath away. It really took me by surprise. Uh, and, um, and it was so lovely and affecting. And the movie has obviously become a tribute to Chadwick, and I think a beautiful one as well to how, how great an actor he was. Uh, from your point of view, uh, can you talk about that, what this film means to you in terms of it being his, his swan song? Well, it's, it's you know, it's a, a few things, you know. Uh, but primarily, it's, you know, he seemed to be someone who spent his life all in. You know, mm-hmm. by that I mean, he, he didn't do, it didn't seem as though, he, his work didn't seem as though he was phoning anything in, that he was half-stepping on any of it. It just seemed, like, because I know from what we did, the energy that he put into what he did in, in, in the show, now that I know what he was going through, mm-hmm to put that much energy, physical energy, I'm talking about physical energy, uh, uh, which, you know, strenuous, was strenuous work. It was strenuous, you know, the, some of the scenes that we had to do was strenuous work. And he could have easily held back, you know, being in the condition that he was in, you know. But that was not his way. His way was all in. You mm-hmm. know? Yeah. And... Uh, so that that was just you know wonderful to see you know wonderful to see you know you give your you give your life to something you yeah. know and that that was the perfect example of yeah. you know I give I give my life to this yeah. you know and he did in the yeah. praise he would always say yeah it was one more give me one more one more one, mean, more. Which, one more right which is right. kind one of more. profound when you mm-hmm. think about it yeah it's mm-hmm. like give me one more one more give me one more mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. Give me and George would all say, one more, you do. I got it. George would say, I got it, I got it. And he'd say, one more, one more. One more, one more. 
It's a beautiful performance. It's a beautiful film, uh, guys. I'm, I'm going to let you go now. But uh, I have to ask, is, is is Denzel lurking around at the moment? I mean, because there's still there's several more August Wilson plays to be adapted for the, for the film. So have you checked outside just in case he's he's hanging around with another offer? Well, look, I'll be a PA on one of them. It doesn't matter. I, I, that's that's going to be in the room. That's right. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm like, wait, what are we doing next? <laughs> just got started <laughs> you, you, you got your company we can do them all <laughs> that's, right. that's right and of course this is not a competition guys it's not a competition but I have to say Coleman you are perhaps the best dressed person I've seen all year that is <laughs> phenomenal oh thank you look at God thank you so <laughs> much look at God <laughs> thank you Thank you. Glenn, Michael, you've made an effort, but you know, Coleman's Coleman's looking really slick. Yeah, this is Zoom. You don't know what's happening down here. I could be in like, you know, (laughs) you don't know what's happening down here. Buck naked underneath. I know. And on that bombshell, gentlemen, it's been been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Take care. Thank you. Bye bye. Bye bye. (laughs) Okay, so that was Coleman Domingo, Michael Potts, and Glenn Terman, stars of My Rainey's Black Bottom. And we will be talking about that in a few minutes, because now it is time to talk about the movies that will be out in cinemas, wherever there are cinemas, and on your sofaplex over the Christmas break. And there's a whole ton to get through. We're going to be focusing on four big releases. The first big release to talk about is Wonder Woman 1984. So this is the long-awaited sequel to Wonder Woman, sees Patty Jenkins return, sees Gal Gadot return, sees Chris Pine return, which is a shock to anyone who watched the first Wonder Woman. It has Kristen Wiig and Pedro Pascal on bad guy duties. It's set in, I believe, the year 1984. Hell's Bells, tell us about this movie. Yeah, so um, we rejoined Diana Prince, aka... Wonder Woman, uh, aka Gal Gadot, uh, 66 years after we last saw her. And she's still kind of stuck a little bit. She can't go home to Themyscira. That's close to her. She's obviously lost um, the friend she made in World War One because they're all dead because, you know, it's been 66 years. And um, she's kind of closed herself off from, from the world uh, as a result. That begins to change when she makes friends with a colleague, Barbara Minerva, played by Kristen Wiig. But things are about to go horribly wrong because of a businessman, Max Lord, played by Pedro Pascal, who has this kind of scheme. He reckons he can give you your heart's desire. He can make your dreams come true. And, you know, he can do it for everybody, he thinks. And uh, that's about to throw some real spanners in the works. So while Diana is distracted by the sudden reappearance, which is unexplained, of her dead boyfriend, Steve Trevor, Chris Pine, uh, the whole world begins to go to pot, quite frankly, um, as a result of Maxwell Lord's schemes. I'm not even going to say how or why that happens. It'll mm-hmm. become clear. But mm-hmm. uh, but yeah, there's a lot of stuff to love in this. Like it's First of all, it's a big movie and it's been so long, so long since I saw anything explode or anything like fly or super punch anybody. You know, mm-hmm. it's it, oh, it was so good just to see... A big movie uh, for a start. And, uh, you know, you might have to filter all my reactions through that. And also through the fact that I just adore these characters. I loved the first film. I'm so excited to see them back. So, yeah, so there's loads that's really well done. I think the action is uh, is is pretty solid. Uh, it's not that action-packed a film. There's probably a sort of solid, certainly 45 minutes to an hour in the middle that is pretty much 
people-focused, character-focused, which is mm-hmm. not something you always get in these movies. And it's a testament to the characters that that kind of still works and doesn't drag too much. My issue with this, to the extent I have an issue with it, is a plaint I've made many times on this podcast, which is that there's maybe too much going on and I could maybe have done with just mm-hmm. one bad guy instead of two characters competing with Diana for sort of the, the camera's attention. And I might have just streamlined it a little bit if it were me. Um, it's not that either of the Pedro Pascal or Chris and Wig are bad. They're not at all, but it's just there's a lot going on when all I really want to do is, is watch Wonder Woman be cool. Mm. I did not love this. It has to be said. I was a little disappointed by it. Partly because it's, it's, so, it's I mean, it's a massive departure from the first film. Like for, I mean, putting aside the fact that she's an immortal demigoddess Amazonian, you know, the first one is kind of grounded in a sort of earthy reality to an extent. Do you know what I mean? It has, it's grounded to an extent. <laughs> this one does throw all that out of the window and it does it knowingly and intentionally, but it's quite a shift from, you know, far-fetched but believable to wacky, zany craziness. And I think the thing with this is it's not for me. My personal take on this was that it's not just 80s in setting, it's very much 80s in sensibility. The actual storytelling for me just felt very 80s in that it was it was a caper, it was fun, it was goofy. Like, the underlying sort of mythology slash consistency is not even there. It's just like, just because, just because, everything is just because, this happens because. You know, and on the one hand, we've had the worst year ever, and you could argue that actually what we 100% need is mm. this kind of crazy, madcap fun, you know, it's the antidote to 2020, and I totally get that. And I think people really will respond to that that it is almost the perfect blockbuster to end the year on but equally the part of me that quite wanted it to take itself a little bit more seriously was disappointed and you know there are a couple of scenes there's one sort of fight scene i thought didn't work brilliantly Uh, but other than that i think it's really well made and like i said i don't think there's bad filmmaking here i think it's decisions they made conscious decisions to do it this way and they did it very well within the the sort of boundaries that they laid out for themselves it just isn't quite maybe what i and maybe what some other people will be wanting from this particular film that said i will say there is a a prologue to this which is young diana playing it's a knockout and thermoscura and it's fucking brilliant and i want to see that tv show Well, she is planning an Amazon's TV show, isn't she? So, make it cross for that. Amazon Prime, they should call it. You can take that for free. Okay. Contenders, ready. (laughs) Yeah, I think I'm somewhere between the two stools uh, with you guys on this one. I love the first movie. I love the first movie unabashedly and unashamedly. Mm -hmm. And I was really surprised by the first movie. And because I went in not expecting a great deal, I was blown away. Certainly by the first two thirds, Mm. which I think are, are really beautiful and heartfelt and emotional and unironic and, and you have that wonderful chemistry between Gal Gadot and Chris Pine which is mm. so great and so redolent of the Lois and Clark chemistry deliberately so of course but it's a difficult thing to, to, to do you can set out to aim to recapture the chemistry between Lois and Clark between Chris Reeve and Margot Kidder in the early Superman movies but you can miss by several miles and many films have Mm. And they didn't. And I loved that. And I loved the specificity. And I can't believe I said that without having to do a retake of the World War One setting and the focus that it gave the story. Mm. And it was, a, again, a tonal tightrope for that movie to walk. Because how do you do a brightly coloured Amazonian princess warrior yeah. in the middle of no man's land when millions of people are dying on either side in the mud and the blood? Yeah. And they did it. And they made it work. And it's a transportational movie for me. It's, for me, it's 
far and away the best movie in the DCEU. It may even be in my top 10 superhero movies of all time mm. that aren't in the MCU. And, <laughs> and I love it. I absolutely yeah. love it. And so with that born in mind, I don't think it quite captures the magic of the first movie. Having said that, there's an awful lot of fun to be had. Uh, and I'm not as... I know what you mean. I think it does fall a little bit victim to the Batman Returns and Batman Too Many Villains syndrome. Absolutely. But I also think that Pedro Pascal in particular is really, really good. Oh, I yeah. Think those, I love yeah. them both. Yeah, they're both very, very good performances. Everyone yeah. is great in this film. But yeah, perhaps it does take the focus away a little bit from Diana and mm-hmm. Steve. And that's who you want. Uh, the action set pieces, when they come, I think are, are good. There's, a, there's an extended truck chase. Uh, I won't say where, but... Um, You'll know it. It's in the movie. It's a, it's a bit that looks like a truck chase, and when it happens, it's it's, it's really good. And uh, but yeah, I, I felt that we needed more Diana and Steve, but still, you know, I had good time with it. I had a mm. good time with it. And I've seen it twice, and uh, I would go and see it again, if only to see that pesky feckin' post credits thing that they they denied us. <laughs> but, yeah, I think, uh, yes. I think there's a mid credits thing. I think technically, is it mid credits? Mid credits. I think mid credits. Either way, we didn't see it, so you mm. guys. Um, watching this will be one up on us if you've seen it in watching this, listening to this, will yeah. be one up on us if you've seen it in cinemas. Yeah. So, so yeah, do send in. Let, let me know what it is. Because mm. <laughs> we're in London. Yeah. We're in tier three. We can't even go back and see it. No, Ugh. no. Oh, again, break out the world's smallest violin just for the <laughs> film journalists. Uh, we gave this one four stars. Four stars then for Wonder Woman 1984. I should say that as we understand it. It hasn't been officially confirmed yet, but obviously Wonder Woman 1984 is one of the, in fact, it is the first Wonder Brothers movie that will be hitting HBO Max at the same time. So we're getting that early over here in the UK, those of you who can see it in cinemas. So it's opening on Christmas Day in the States in cinemas, but also on HBO Max. Over here, as far as I can see, it's only available in cinemas for now, there have been rumours, but nothing's been confirmed, that it might be showing up on Sky Cinema after a month or so of release. Sky PVOD. Yeah. Sky Store, maybe. Sorry. Sky yeah, Store. It's not but Sky yeah, Cinema. But not anywhere else. And that's interesting. Hasn't been confirmed. We're asking what's happening with that. And if I get an answer before we put this podcast out, I will insert it into the show and let you guys know. But uh, that's how you can see Wonder Woman 1984. If you live in in a tier three area, then your options are pretty limited, sadly. Uh, But we can all see the next movie we're going to talk about, which is Disney Pixar's Soul on Disney Plus on Christmas Day. It was meant to be a theatrical release but they've put it on to Disney Plus instead, free to all subscribers on Christmas Day. And Jimbo, is partially the reason for that, I wonder that they were slightly nervous that this very ambitious, very audacious, very complex mm-hmm. movie might not have been that commercial. I would have given real money to have been in the shareholders meeting or the shareholders screening where they put this on and the board like watched it and like looked at each other after and went, what the fuck just happened? <laughs> uh, so this stars Jamie Foxx or rather the voice of Jamie Foxx as Joe Gardner, who's this sort of band teacher in middle school. And he gets the chance of his life, of his career to play in the best jazz club in town for a jazz act that he loves. And he's elated. His whole life has been made. And then one misstep takes him down a manhole and he's 
dead and ends up in the great beyond where all souls go when they die. Now, he's unhappy with this. He was about to have his dream gig and he's not going to let the simple matter of death get in his way. So he tries to head back to Earth. And the way he does this is by teaming up with 22, voiced by Tina Fey, who's a kind of precocious little soul who's never understood the appeal of, uh, of, of being a human. And she's in the great before and has no real wish to go down to Earth. But, spoiler, they do end up going down to Earth and he tries to get back to his body. Now, this is directed by Kent Powers and, and Pete Docter, and all, all you know, it, it, this has the hallmarks of what Pixar does when it's at its absolute best. Now, you use something like Inside Out. Inside Out is genius because it is that classic thing where Pixar have two films, two completely distinct films, one mm-hmm. for kids and one for adults. You're both watching entirely different movies and having the times of your life. And this is what this seems to go for, but misses the mark by some margin. Like, it is utterly batshit it's really really fucking dense and so like it talks about like bear in mind this is a film about you know predeterminism existentialism and lest we forget improvisational jazz music and yet it's aimed somehow on some level at kids and i feel a little bit like certainly for the first half of the movie kids are probably just going what the actual paw patrol is going on here because i have no clue <laughs> because even i was watching it thinking i'm very very loosely following what is happening here like it's pretty like there are picasso inspired counselors there there are all little blue weird baby soul things there's a, a zone with big zombie tentacle things uh, there's this graham norton this graham norton <laughs> in, a, in a surprisingly large role like it's a really fucking weird film and so i think the biggest problem here is i just think it misses its target audience by a country mile but i think underlying that is another problem for me and which is you know and while it seems a bit reductive it doesn't have soul like this film has no real emotional punch to it i found the story entertaining enough um it was okay but it didn't get me at any point i didn't it didn't tap into me emotionally it's not just because i'm cold and dead inside i genuinely think it is a problem with the way this film is structured and I didn't really warm to the characters either. I didn't especially like Fox's Joe Gardner, and I found Tina Fey's 22 quite irritating. Well, 22 in fairness is trying to be irritating. She is, absolutely. But I didn't warm to her at any point. And for me, I came out of this thinking, genuinely thinking, is this the worst Pixar film? And before you say, hang on, James, hang on, James, The Good Dinosaur and Cars are demonstrably worse. And yes, there is, of course... No, 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 no. You take The Good Dinosaur's (laughs) name out of your mouth. You stop disrespecting The Good Dinosaur. That movie... destroyed me how dare you regardless of how you feel about the good dinosaur no all of those films know who they're for the good dinosaur knows who it's for cars cars two and cars three they know who they're for this film i don't know who it's for i really don't this know film who knows it's who it's for it's just not for who you think it's for because it's a yeah. pixar movie yeah. this is a really ambitious really adult movie it's an art house film that pete <laughs> doctor has somehow smuggled yeah, into is. pixar <laughs> yeah. and i love it for that did it connect with me in the way that Monsters, Inc. or Up or Inside Out, the previous three Pete Doctor movies for Pixar, did? No. But was I dazzled by its audacity? Was I dazzled by its ambition? Was I dazzled by the fact that, you know, there are jokes that sailed over my head, never let kids sense? <laughs> yes, I applaud that. I think that's tremendous. I think Pixar, you know, I, I think sometimes this movie, you can almost feel it fighting with itself to yeah. be a Pixar movie that must have a cute double act at the center and must have cute things and life lessons being 
you know, being mm-hmm. bestowed upon people. Those are the moments when it doesn't really work for me. The moments when it flies for me are the moments when it's doing things that only animation can do as a medium. And it's extraordinary in that, in that respect. Yeah. The first 30, 40 minutes of this movie in particular for me are extraordinary and unlike anything I've ever seen before. And I love that. Yeah, I think that's my issue with it is I'm I'm here for all the crazy, weird, conceptual stuff. And then there's this kids movie for like, half an hour, 40 minutes, and then we're back to the weird, crazy conceptual stuff. And I think that's a hard road to travel because mm. I think you're going to lose somebody at each of those transitions. Yeah, And the people who are here for the middle bit are not necessarily here for the beginning and the end and, and vice versa. So it's difficult in that way. I like that they tried to give Joe real cultural specificity. I mean, you know, he's a rare black Pixar lead. And I think they've, they've done really well in, in trying to make that come through and come out. And they've, they've, used huge numbers of cultural consultants and and interesting voices and interesting input to make sure that that comes across. Obviously, Kemp Powers being key to that as well. But then, you know, I don't know if that's really effectively portrayed given that, you know, he spends half the, the film as a blue blob, essentially. Um, so it's it it takes some very odd turns in, in I think, pursuit of laudable aims. And it's often deeply, deeply weird. But I like the weirdness more than I like the conventionality. I think I think mm. if they'd leaned more into the weirdness, I think I'd, I'd have loved this more. <laughs> um, it got me in the feels a bit, but less so than other Pixar yeah. movies have done, for sure. You're absolutely right, though. That, that transition to what is essentially a completely different film mm. in the middle of it for a brief period of time is very strange. It's very strange. I think you're right. And it, it, it's, it's almost like they get to it too late to it for it to feel like an integral yeah. part of the film. It's a curious choice. It's a very odd, odd thing. But I mean, look, visually incredible, ideas wise, incredible. I just, you know, I feel like it's trying too hard to conform to somebody's idea of what a, a, a animated movie has to do. And I kind of wish it, it had felt free to fly because there's real, you know, like you mentioned Picasso, there's Picasso, there's Miyazaki, there's just all these crazy artists going into this Kandinsky and stuff as well, I think. Like, crazy, crazy stuff, crazy music, crazy, incredible ideas, and then, you know, a bit with a cat. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's interesting, because I think that at one point, the movie was set 90%, roughly, you know, back in the day, Mm. conceptually, at least in what they called the great before in the movie. I don't know whether that could have sustained an entire movie, I'll be honest. Maybe not, Uh, maybe not. Maybe not. Maybe they, maybe they found that it just didn't work structurally, that it collapsed under its own weight. Who knows? Uh, maybe a movie made by Disney has to steer clear of making pronouncements on what happens when you die. And, you know, heaven and hell, it, it tiptoes very nimbly around, around those concepts. You know, very God much. and the devil, I don't think, come into play in this one. But yeah, I, I, I can absolutely see, and I know people who've been left cold by it, we gave it three stars. I think I would give it three stars. I might be higher. Yeah, I'm. I'm definitely higher. Uh, I don't think it's a masterpiece. I don't think it's in the up and inside out realm, but it might be in time. And it's beautiful. It's absolutely mm. beautiful to it look at. It is beautiful. Yeah, the light in the New York scenes, like not to be oh. granular about it, but the light in the New York scenes is unbelievable. You've never seen anything like it in an yeah. animated movie. Yeah. And I have to say, I'm really, really looking forward to talking about it in our, in our spoiler special, which will be out the first week of Jan, I think, folks. So, yes, three stars. We gave this one three stars for Soul. 
Now we move on to another film that is on Netflix, and it is also in cinemas as well, uh, select cinemas around the country, and it is Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. Now we talked about this a little bit when it came out a couple of weeks ago, Helen, mm. but I think it warrants perhaps a deeper dive into it. Yeah, I mean, this is, uh, I hadn't seen it at that point, and I'm so glad that I now have, um, because it's just some fantastic performances and a really pretty well adapted play, obviously coming from the August Wilson, as you as you said earlier. Um, but, it, it, you know, it's it still feels stagey at times. It still feels monologue at times. Um, but it does also feel cinematic. I think that the director, George C. Wolfe, has done a really, really good job of, of keeping the pace up and the, the rhythm up on screen um, and kind of getting across the energy of the play and the energy of live performance in that's that's such a big part of the of the narrative itself. So uh, as you know, Viola Davis is is my rainy, um, kind of made up uh, to look quite extraordinary. You know, giant sort of weeping eyeliner, bright kind of slightly garish makeup, incredible outfits. She is the star of the show. She knows it. She is not on stage for the or on screen for the most part but even when she isn't there her presence is felt she's the person driving everybody else and she tends to make everyone pivot around her when she does show up but yeah. really the meat of this is about the musicians uh getting ready for her arrival preparing rehearsing making sure that they will be on point so that when the star comes in and lays down her vocal everything else is going to be spot on. Um, and because they're all professionals, because they've all done this before, because they know this stuff backwards, they actually have a lot of time left over for philosophizing, for making fun of each other's fashion choices, uh, for, in the case of Chadwick Boseman's Levy, uh, hitting on Ma's girlfriend, uh, Doozy May. It's, you know, there's a lot of kind of uh, room to play uh, in every sense of the word uh, around the edges. But what you actually get are several just searing, just fiery monologues, particularly on Levy's yeah. part, but but fiery discussions of black art and black identity, black personhood in a world that is hostile. And I mean, it's a real barn burner of a play um, in a way that Fences kind of felt almost more sedate by comparison, I feel like. Really? A little bit at times, yeah. I wonder if the running time has something to do with that. Fences Maybe. was pretty long, and this yeah. is ninety minutes. Ninety. It's I mean, really, it's, this is really in and out. Yeah, you know? that's extraordinary. I think for a play yeah. taken to the screen, it really yeah. is to be ninety minutes ish. Yeah. yeah, I think it's it's really good. I I wrote the feature for this for the magazine, mm. and I spoke to George C. Wolfe and Viola Davis and Denzel Washington uh, for the feature, and they were really good on. I think one of the things that the movie and of course the play is really good on as well, which is about black artists knowing their worth mm. and being exploited by white management white management white yeah. executives and it's really good about Ma Rainey knowing her worth and not settling for anything less mm -hmm. and knowing that she's going she's being exploited but exploiting them back in return yeah. whereas Levy and the band are on a different rung of a ladder Levy in particular who has all yeah. the talent in the world but all the rage in the world as well, and how it can sometimes, you know, the, the, these industries, not just the creative ones, can chew up young, talented black men. I thought it was really, really great. And I don't, we talked about this a little bit with Amon a couple of weeks mm -hmm. ago, I don't mind that it feels stagey. No, it no, does. not at all. 
Yeah, because when the writing's this good, when the performances are this good, yeah. it's great. And whenever, you know, the scenes, I, you know, I loved all the stuff with Viola Davis, who's great, uh, as my Rainey. I loved all that stuff. But it's Bozeman. It's, it's Bozeman and the guys. It's the guys mm-hmm. I interviewed. It's, it's you know, Coleman Domingo, Michael Potts and Glenn Turman, who are wonderful as mm-hmm. well. You know, and they are, they're in this little tight, claustrophobic, you can, you can smell the sweat, you can smell the smoke, little rehearsal room. And there they have all these skirmishes, verbal mm. or otherwise. It's just, it's just fantastic. And it, it, all the way through, you're, it's impossible not to think about Chadwick Boseman. Yeah. Obviously, it's his last movie. The movie is dedicated to him. When I saw it for the first time, that, that really affected me. Mm. Um, and, you know, having spoken to the people behind it, you know, he, didn't, he hadn't told anyone on the production. Yeah. And, uh, and yet, for someone who is as advanced as he was, at that time, to give out that performance. I mean, that energy and just, yeah, it's incredible. Yeah, it is incredible. It's a really, really good film uh, with some wonderful, wonderful performances that really elevate it. Uh, And we gave us one, four stars. Four stars for Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. And the last film we're going to talk about in detail this year is George Clooney's The Midnight Sky, which is a post-apocalyptic Comedy romp, isn't it, Jimbo? <laughs> yes, that is exactly what it is. It is a laugh riot. Yeah, George is behind the camera and in front of the camera for this one again. It's a kind of, it's a rather contemplative, mm. introspective sci-fi. It's based on a book by uh, the book Good Morning Midnight by uh, Lily Brooks Dalton. It's something Clooney's actually uh, billed as gravity meets the revenant. So if you can do the mental gymnastics necessary to square those two things, okay. good luck to you. Yeah. But... Um, <laughs> It's a film with two distinct narrative strands. So the first sees Clooney as a scientist in an abandoned kind of Arctic listening post. He's one of the last survivors of the human race after a deliberately vague disaster renders the Earth uninhabitable. I was so frustrated by the fact they were vague about the disaster. Yeah, yeah. But anyway, you're not the only one. Please carry on. Please carry on. But so (laughs) when everyone else evacuates, the term obviously evacuate being relative when there's nowhere safe to go but uh, he stays behind and elects to try and contact the crew of a deep space exploration mission who've been charting a distant world uh, and he wants to warn them not to return to earth now, obviously this is a plan that's somewhat complicated when he discovers he's not alone after all as a little girl has stowed away at the station Okay, so that's thread one. Thread two is that of the space mission itself, captained by David Oyelowo, uh, with a crew including Kyle Chandler and a pregnant Felicity Jones, whose part was rewritten to accommodate that fact. Uh, And they're returning to Earth unaware of why they can't get anyone on the radio and dealing with the kind of things that tend to go wrong in space. So like broken comms equipment and the occasional meteor storm. So, thing about this film, it's kind of on paper, it's like an exciting race against time apocalypse thriller. And yet it is the absolute opposite of that (laughs) this is not the day after tomorrow no it's not the day after the day after tomorrow at all it's basically this thoughtful almost philosophical look Mm. at humanity's legacy it's like this kind of mournful eulogy for 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 human existence Um, i mean like soul yes (gasps) indeed indeed and wonder woman 1984 Um, (laughs) (laughs) but Clooney, like in this, I, I I really enjoyed his performance in this. I mean, he's always great, but he's mm. deliberately melancholy, and his scenes are very slow. Partly because he's ill and he's shuffling about a lot, but he's kind of reflecting on his own life and his mistakes through these flashbacks. And it's it's a really soulful performance. It has a kind of wistful air, and I rather mm. liked it. I think the space thread is probably more traditional. There are disasters, there are kind of EVA sequences, but even that has this layer of sadness and regret to it. And I think when those two threads converge, it, it kind of really pays off. There's this. Um, 
um, uh, uh, sort of poignant finale. I found it very moving. It won't be for everyone. Mm. Uh, I do suspect people will find the film quite boring. I think the ending will jar for a great many people. I will say I think that there's one aspect to the ending which is very heavy-handed. And there is, there is, admittedly, a bit where George Clooney is wailing into a blizzard while a cello moans away on the soundtrack, which you could argue is laying it on a little bit thick. But there is something about this that really, really worked for me. Like, it's it's beautifully shot, absolutely beautiful to look at. Mm. There's real soul to it, with a small s. Sure, they treat radio transmissions between space and Earth like your average phoner to LA, and that's not how it works. But fine, fine, we can let that go for the sake <laughs> of cinematic oh practicalities. It's like, if you can believe the, the movie in which the, the lady has a magic rope that lights up and and tell the helps truth. you fly. Yeah, it helps people tell the truth. Yeah, she lassoes clouds. I would go with the movie in which people can go to Jupiter. For sure. I, I really yeah. like this, actually. I And it got me in the feels quite hard mm. to use the vernacular. Uh, mm. I thought uh, it was, yeah, just really melancholy, as you say, and, and really kind of thoughtful, but not completely lost in itself. I think that's what the astronaut thread helped with because yeah. they are so professional and calm and, you know, collected and going about their day. Anytime you f- you see Kyle Chandler, you're like, oh, thank God, somebody competent is here. It's going to be okay. <laughs> Same with David Oyelowo, actually. There's, there's an air of just calm about that thread, which contrasts with the sort of, you know, this, this sense that Clooney... Clooney's character has kind of been left to die and is kind of okay with that until... You know, the girl turns up and, and he realises that the astronauts are still out there and he sort of suddenly gets the the impetus to move, I guess. But it's it's a really lovely story about, I guess, finding a purpose again and, and trying to hold on to that purpose. Oh my God, it is soul. Uh, <laughs> anyway, yeah, I, I it, it, it did work for me really, really well. I liked it. Mm, so did I. We only gave it three stars, which I thought was harsh. I probably would have yeah, given it four. I might, I might edge up to a four. It's Christmas. It's a time of four stars. That's right. Uh, yeah, this is a jolly feel-good film, isn't it? Just in time for Christmas. That's <laughs> a feel-good hit. Yeah. It's the sort of film as I was watching, I was going, oh man, I wish we were doing a spoiler special for this, because there's some stuff I really want to talk about mm. in it, but we're not, because uh, I might die if we added another spoiler special to the pile. <laughs> but listen, George, if you're listening to this, and I know you are, why don't you take a break from making some Nespresso, you lazy git, and come and talk to us on the... <laughs> hang on, that... that I should probably be more conciliatory in my tone. It's probably, probably not the right yeah. wording. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, George, come and talk to us in the spoiler special uh, if you can. Just slide into my DMs. <laughs> <laughs> uh, there are a couple of other movies to talk about, but the ones we are talking about in detail are, in fact, the ones we have talked about. <laughs> and there are other movies out, though, as well. So last week we had Frank Marshall on the show, the great Frank Marshall, uh, who has directed a documentary by the Bee Gees called The Bee Gees, How Can You Mend a Broken Heart, which is a really fun, interesting, engrossing deep dive into their careers. Taught me a lot of stuff I didn't know about the Bee Gees. Reminded me again how belting they were when they were at their absolute best. Saturday Night Fever is Staying Alive is one of the greatest songs of all time, and I mm. will die on that hill absolutely no question some interesting omissions completely omits as I talked about with Frank Marshall their decision to star in a musical based on Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band which is famously one of the worst movies ever made and it completely omits You Win Again which was their big comeback in the UK in the middle of the 80s it's oh, yeah. a banging tune but you know apart from that it's pretty damn good and then just very, very quickly as well, uh, Come Away, the movie I, I interviewed David Oyelowo about, and I enjoyed this movie. We gave it three stars. I thought it's well acted. It's strikingly directed by Brenda Chapman, who, of course, was the original director on Pixar's Brave, and is a very, very 
nice way, I think, of reimagining the origins of Peter Pan and Alice in Wonderland and grounding them in a real world. And it has a really interesting blend of darkness. Some dark shit goes down in this movie. Three stars for Come Away. And then we give two stars to the latest film from Thomas Basuka, the director of The Family Stone, which is a, of course, a mm, Christmas, Christmas movie. movie. Mm. This is not a Christmas movie. This is Let Him Go, which is a uh, a sort of modern day Western about revenge starring Kevin Costner and Diane Lane. I haven't seen it yet, sadly. Uh, I had heard good things, but we gave it two stars. So two stars then for Let Him Go. Uh, But I think over the Christmas period, if you're not watching Christmas movies, and you should be, I think the four films we talked about in depth will be more than enough to see you through until we return on January 8th, because that's when we're back, the 8th of January. Woo! And we'll be joined by someone. I'm not entirely sure who it is yet. (laughs) So if you're wondering what I'll be doing for the first week of... 2021, it is getting a guest for the first podcast of 2021. That's what I'll be doing, pretty much. And I should say as well that we're hoping to, to announce a live show because our 450th episode is coming up and we usually do the, the big landmark shows live. But we have a sneaky suspicion we'll be in lockdown or at least tier three in early February when mm. episode 450 is due. So we're hoping to do a live show at King's Place or if not, stream something somehow so keep them peeled keep them peeled and uh, who knows maybe you can spend some of that post Christmas money that I know everyone is going to be rolling around in uh, <laughs> and uh, and come and see us live or come see us uh, streaming as well that sounded unfortunate but I'm moving on <laughs> we got some specials coming up as well if you are a subscriber to our spoiler special channel you're going to get all sorts of stuff the aforementioned Love Actually the aforementioned National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation uh, in early January you're going to have Wonder Woman 1984 and Soul as well uh, we have our last Mandalorian episode of season 2 will be up on Monday as well finally as well the Ghosts spoiler specials I promise you will be up before the Ghosts Christmas special which is on BBC One over the Christmas period. They they will be up as well. And then in the new year, we're going to hit you with all sorts of goodness as well, retro or otherwise. But our Review of the Year podcast, our epic behemoth two-hour Review of the Year podcast will be up on next Friday. When is that? That's Christmas 24th, Day. Isn't it? No, that's oh, the no, 25th. Right. It's Christmas Day. I'm not working Christmas Day, but I might be able to have it finished and up for you on Christmas Day. What a present that would be. Imagine just waking up and finding the Empire podcast stuffed into your stocking. What a way to end 2020. Good Lord, all of us? Yeah. One stocking. One stocking. Let's hope they added some Lycra. Yes. <laughs> Three colleagues of such lethal cunning. One stocking, no limits. That's our motto. <laughs> and on that note, that is it for the Empire podcast for 2020. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, and thank you so much for your lovely feedback all the way through the year. It has really meant a lot and helped us keep going uh, as well. We hope that we have done the same for a lot of you at home. But until we meet again, until that auspicious occasion, until then, it is goodbye from James Dyer. Yippee-ki-yay, motherfuckers. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> it is goodbye from Helen O'Hara. Happy Christmas. And here's a good riddance to 2020. Roll yeah. on 2021. May it be better for all of us. May it be better indeed. Fuck you, 2020, you absolute prick. <laughs> and it is goodbye from me. I can smell bacon in the air. A lovely smell is filling my flat. And it's not the usual smell that fills my flat, I can assure you. I think my wife has put some more cookies on. So I'm off to put that cookie down. Oh, my throat into my stomach, where we'll 
live a short but happy life. Thank you so much. <laughs> what are we digested over a thousand years, yes. much like the Sarlacc? Yes. If you hear my insides go plop, it's because <laughs> it's because of my wife's cookies. But I will die a Your very, wife's very happy man. My wife's cookies are out of this world. Not a euphemism. Thank you so much for listening. See you next year. Merry Christmas. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye.